Today's guest is Bill Hartman. For many of those in the physical therapy and coaching worlds, especially those that regularly listen to this podcast, he needs no introduction. For those that aren't familiar, Bill is a physical therapist and, together with Mike Robertson, founded Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training, known as iFast, located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Over the past decade, iFast has quietly become one of the predominant hubs of education in our industry. Former Bill mentees include Zach Couples, Mike Camperini, and what feels like 25% of medical and physical prep staff in both the NBA and MLB. This past January, I had the pleasure of going out to Indy for three weeks to learn from Bill. This upcoming January, I'll be heading out for three months to continue my study as we attempt to improve my movement profile enough that I may be able to avoid hip surgery. Bill's a fiercely independent thinker and one of the most intellectually honest individuals I've ever met. As such, his style of communication may not be for everyone, but as you'll hear from him, that's kind of the point. In this episode, we touch on Bill's ability to continue training in the weight room despite middle age, numerous surgeries, and nagging pain, how he approaches restoring comfortable movement with his clients, and some uncommon considerations regarding total hip replacements. If you're listening to this intro, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on your chosen podcatcher. Doing so helps Michelle and I out tremendously as we continue to grow the caliber of this content and endeavor to get bigger and bigger names to share with you. As always, we appreciate you listening. I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. I am live with Bill Hartman. Bill, how are you? Outstanding. As always. As always. Yes, and you got a puppy. You got a puppy. I do. My I got a puppy. Yeah. Rita's here. So we're all happy. Where'd the name Rita come from, by the way? So her kennel name was Margaret, which we hated. And then um, that became Margarita. And then, then it became uh, Her Royal Highness Princess Margarita Fishers. And then that was a little long. So we just decided to go with Rita. <laughs> So. You'll whip out the the Princess Margarita Fishers when she's in trouble, I suppose. I was just gonna say it's like it's like when we when we're angry, it's it's kind of like when your parents used to use the only time that you ever heard your middle name was when your parents were angry with you. So yeah, the only time my parents ever used my royal designation was when they were pissed. <laughs> Prince Timothy. Yes. Uh, so, Bill, we are talking about uh, on this season of More Train Less Pain. Anyway, we're talking about uh, kind of trying to improve fitness outcomes within the setting of, of chronic and persistent pain. And I know this is something that you, uh, I mean, professionally, obviously know a great deal about, but but personally have some experience with as well. I was hoping that you could kick us off by telling the audience and myself a little bit more about uh, kind of when you started to experience substantial pain or limitation that affected you know your training. Oh, so it's always been there. <laughs> I get that. Um, yeah. The first chronic stuff showed up in college. Uh, I, I played at a football, a small college, but I was a very small person. And so, um, you know, got beat up a little bit. And so that sort of perpetuated it, but it's also where, you know, you sort of fall in love with the training aspect of things that evolved into uh, bodybuilding, which was a lot of, for me, a lot of muscle on a small frame. And then, um, you know, the, the chronicity sort of starts under those circumstances. You get like shoulder stuff, you get hip stuff, and you just figure out ways around it, you know, and, and it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. And then you sort of start to realize that, oh, it's sort of coming a whole lot than going. And, uh, um, you know, you just sort of evolve um, within whatever you're capable of doing, you find, like I said, you find ways to continue um, because everybody thinks they're kind of superhuman, right? Can't happen to me. Um, the, you know, the phrases that you hear frequently are like, I never had trouble before. And people don't recognize the fact that these things are cumulative. So we experience these very small changes over time and some are, are relatively permanent and then they accumulate and then they do become permanent. And then that is where you take the more drastic actions. But generally speaking, it's like it was just a long process um, that, that I experienced. And I think most people go through that. It's like you, you sort of just 
chalk things up to like, okay, you know, I'm getting older. So you turn 30 and you go, yeah, I'm not 25 anymore. And, uh, and then you turn 35 and you go, yeah, but I'm not 30 anymore. And then it just continues on from there. And, but, you know, in my case, um, there was a period where the, the goal was to be bulletproof and superhuman, right? So you're, you're really pushing, you're pushing the limits. And I, at one point I weighed 240 pounds, which, you know, on, on my frame is, is kind of ridiculous. So that's, um, 65 pounds heavier than I am now, 60 pounds heavier than I am now. And, and, you know, I wasn't like a fat guy, but it was way too much to, to try to carry. And then to try to maintain, because you think about the, the kind of loading that you have to do under those circumstances. So it's loading five, six days a week for 25 years. Right. And then sure. th there is a price to pay for that. Right. And, it, it, you know, if you're a marathon runner, it's it's the same premise. It's like eventually, depending on how hard you work. And then some people's structures are better than others. Some people absorb things better than others. Some people make fewer mistakes than others. Um, but eventually we all um, sort of hit the limit. And when you, when you were certainly slammed into it rather aggressively. <laughs> I think most people do, frankly. Well, we all do. Like I said, we all, want, we all want to do things that we enjoy. We all want the solutions to be the things that we want them to be. And then the reality is, is that, okay, you know, you have to understand like where your errors and judgment were, you know, you let your, your emotions sort of make the decisions and then you rationalize after the fact, that's how humans work. And, and so we all, we all go there, you know, at times and we all experience things, um, you know, to our detriment because of that. I think uh, people are kind of inherently resistant in change as well. So as they're, they're accumulating these little aches and niggles, I think the, you know, the preference is to write things off or to say, oh, this is this is one weird repetition, or you know, I I woke I woke up and I slept the wrong way, something like that, as opposed to oh, there has you know, there's been an error in how I'm thinking about either, you know, my, my range of motion work, my training, something inherent more of my lifestyle that then I'm, I'm having to contend with. It's a lot easier just to think, oh, I, you know, I pressed that weight wrong one time and I just need someone to do something to my shoulder one time. Right. Right. And, and that might, that can actually be the case, right? So we, we, we make motor errors all the time, right? Which is one of the reasons why we just sort of, and you think about your prior experience, it's like everybody at some point in time has stepped on a pebble, rolled their ankle, walked it off, and it was nothing. And, you know, didn't think anything of it. And so then we sort of associate little things that kind of come and go with that. But again, we tend to accumulate things over time. And this is this is the thing that we, we probably need to be most aware of. Um, because what's not addressed in many circumstances, most people exercise themselves. They're not guided. They're not coached. Most people do it on them on their own, right? And so, you know, it's that experience that that we sort of want to negate as much of the the negative secondary consequences as as possible. We don't want to accept the blame for it, even though we are certainly responsible for everything that happens to us. Um, so um, lost my train of thought there. No, uh, and, and, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get to, uh, we're going to get to plenty of kind of the negative and secondary consequence type stuff, because I think I credit you somewhat uniquely in um, making me a lot more aware of that stuff, both in my own training and how I manage patients. Now talk to me a little bit. So, you know, you mentioned the chronicity of some of your some of your stuff. And I know, you know, I, I hope you won't uh, be angry, but you know, I, I know you have some hip stuff. I know you have some shoulder stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but uh, talk to me about, you know, when you were in your twenties and thirties, kind of what was your thought process in managing that? Was that making changes to sets and reps, changes to exercise selection? Was that you doing specific stretches, soft tissue work? Like what did, what did it used to look like? Like all of the above at different at different times, and so and you you've experienced this in your career. It's like there's certain things that that you learn through your professional evolution, and so then I can add this tool into uh, my training as I as I need to. And so so again, managing things 
um, something would arise, you make a change and, and you use all of the above. It's like, do you change sets and reps? Absolutely you do. Do you change exercises? Absolutely you do. Do you change any of the loading perms? Absolutely you do. Do you add in soft tissue work? Absolutely you do, right? So so it, again, it's at different places and times and then you have a favorable result. And then again, ignoring some of the secondary consequences, we will slowly gravitate towards those things that we enjoyed the most. And, and so then we sort of fall back on some of these, these you know, unfortunate um, habits that again, we, we all wanna to gravitate towards the things that we like to do, but we can't, you know, and, uh, Again, if you're if you're coached objectively by someone else, we tend to have a little bit better um, outcome in that regard. It's, it's when we're self-guided that we tend to ignore what it would be the rational solution, which would be to make a much more significant change away from those things that we uh, shouldn't be doing. I, I mean, bias is a bitch always. And I of think course, that, and, we, and know, that, we, we all have yeah. it. We all have yeah. it. It, it. It's the hardest thing. It is the hardest thing to recognize the fact that, you know, you're driven by your bias, that you're responsible. It's going to happen to you, right? You know, nobody wants to believe that. Nobody wants to believe that, but we've got way too much evidence to the contrary. So it is. It is my job today to, to try to keep you as uh, as specific and as on track as possible. Can you? Mm-hmm. Provide, and I don't mean for this to be an interview question, but can you provide me with one specific example of, let's say, something that you were dealing with injury-wise in your twenties or thirties, and the and the changes that you that you made, like maybe like something like that that was successful? Yeah. Um, so for surgery, uh, age thirty, uh, anterior labrum tear, went for the uh, second rep at 325 pounds in a bench press and the shoulder gave way on the second rep and, uh, my spotter pulled it off my chest and I knew right away what had happened. And then I ignored it for the next nine months thinking that I could work around it. Um, didn't go well. So, um, at the time, this was, this would be fairly early in my career and the, the tools that I had available to work with, the understanding that I had available to work with was rather limited compared to, to where things are now. And so I was using traditional means that you would typically try to apply in regards to, oh, I could stretch, I could increase rotator cuff strength in isolation and any manual therapy that I could apply to myself Um, because I don't like people touching me, Um, I I could implement that as well. And then it was just, it came down to exercise selection. So, okay, so the barbell bench press can sort of, you know, takes the back seat. You you try to do things a little bit more um, isolative or unilateral under those circumstances to try to work around it. And some of those things do, do help to a degree, but eventually the, the recognition was that, okay, um, this is this is too big of an issue um, when you when you have a, a, a sufficient structural limitation, it has to be resolved um, because you just don't have the, the mechanical element intact anymore to allow you to access normal motions and such. And that's, so so I, I would assume you made the decision to undergo some kind of a label repair. I did. I did. Yeah. Like I said, that, that was that was the the. First surgery was at age 30. Yeah. And it was a right shoulder. Um, you know, go ahead. Talk to me about kind of like the, the year following, um, less so interested in like the acute rehab. Cause that sort of is what it is, but what yeah. sort of changes did you make to, I think, you know, training or overall methodology coming out of that? Was it just kind of like, Oh, the thing is fixed now I'm back to bench and heavy or were there some no, pretty substantial? No, there was actually some rational thought there for a while. So. <laughs> <laughs> impressive for a 30 year old where, where well it was it was it was basically it was basically the you know reduction in load was was a was a big one so again shifting away it, it, to, to be as big as i was and as strong as i was it, it's like you're you're lifting a great deal of weight frequently low repetition heavy weight kind of and almost a powerlifting style um type of a of, of a background with a wanting to gain muscle mass skew if you will um, that sort of went by the wayside for a while, for a while. And I would say probably a couple of years, um, there was a, there was a period there where, okay, I, I know I can't load myself the way I did. So it was basically a substitution of lower 
lower load, more repetition, kind of a, kind of a background, selecting activities that were not painful. So, you know, you, you have certain patterns of, of movement that will be less painful. And so the, you know, switching from like something as simple as a barbell bench press to a dumbbell bench press would be dramatic in its, in its uh, sensation, right? Where as soon as you put a barbell in your hand, you, you're, you're, it's painful. You put the dumbbells in your hands, obviously you have, you have greater uh, options in regards to where the limb is going to be in space under those circumstances. And so it's, it's less painful. So you just find ways to, to work around it. Uh, as much as you can. So those would be the big changes. But again, not what I would recommend for, you know, other folks under under the circumstance, right? For, for sure. Again, I'm, I, I, as well educated as, as one may be, the objectivity, you just, it just doesn't exist in your own head. And so while you can make, you know, uh, consolations as to what, what exercises you might select eventually as as you start to feel better it's like oh i can still do this and again the the secondary consequence consequences fall by the wayside was it a similar situation kind of you know jumping forward in time maybe 10 or 15 years with the hips was that kind of a gradual onset sort well, I've of always had, I've always had hip stuff okay. always had hip stuff right so from playing football um, had a couple of couple of of you know physical blows to the hip that resulted in some some chronicity in that regard. Did some martial arts that actually helped for a little while, um, and then it sort of creeped its way back in. And then there was the, there was a there was a final incident that was the wake up call, which was probably um, um, it probably saved me, so to speak, if you will. Um, in the midst of a heavy deadlift, there was a searing pain in the anterior aspect of my hip and I could not unbend my hip. So that sounds it dramatic. Locked. It was locked. Yeah. Um, it, it was actually really bad. It was actually yeah. really, really bad. Um, don't recommend it to anyone else. Um, but like I said, it was sort of like, it was sort of like the, the beginning of the end. Of, and, and it was on that day that everything changed. Unfortunately, I was way too far into it by then, um, as far as saving the the structure. That like the structure was just unfortunately beyond repair at that point, and then it just gets progressively worse just from normal activities. Unfortunately, prior to that day, had you been somewhat successful in managing that hip discomfort via other yeah. means? And yeah. what, what what those other mean? What the other means look like? I mean, like very specific tools and such. It's like yeah. it's like this is this is where like self applied manual therapies come into play. Um, you know, foam rollers, lacrosse balls, like your little bendy tools that you know um, that that poke on and prod on things. Um, some of the, the instrument assisted stuff was was useful under those circumstances. Were and you a, a lot of so, sorry, just a lot of movement in general um, it was was helpful. But again, once you once you pass a certain threshold of degenerative changes, there's there's no going back under that circumstance. Were you applying those tools with any kind of specific ranges of motion or objective movement testing in mind, or was it kind of more like symptomatic or palliative? Um, to, when you're testing yourself, it's very, very difficult to test things in isolation. So you're using, you're using complex movements under that circumstance. So you're going to fall back on your squats, your split squats, your toe touch, your leg raises, stuff like that. Um, the ability to reach in certain directions overhead, behind your back, just just like again, you, you, one of the great self tests for shoulders. Can you tuck your shirt in? Like you know, reach behind you and tuck your shirt in. Like those are like that's the stuff that you kind of notice. And so that's that's what you generally would use. It's like especially things like a squat. You know, there were there would be days where you know you wake up, hips are kind of sore. You go through your your movement stuff. You do some of your foam rolling stuff, and then your squat feels great. Right, because you made enough favorable change to to, and you have a path that you can access where there was less concern that you're you're bumping into the structural uh, issues. So you, again, this is the this is the work around. Um, but like I said, eventually it'll catch you. Were you then? Would you use like back in those days? Would you use things like warm up sets to sort of like feel oh, out yeah. what absolutely what, 
was there anything more uh, official is the word that comes to mind, but like anything more structured where you were testing, say like a, a feet straight parallel squat on a weekly basis, or was it just still rather feel based? It's, that it's like the day-to-day thing. It, it's like, what am I doing today? Right. So if I'm doing something that would be sort of upper, upper body biased activity, then you're going to be checking shoulder position. It's like, can I hang from a bar without pain? Awesome. That's step one. Can I reach by my back without pain? Awesome. Can I lay on my back and put my hands behind my head and touch my elbows to the floor? Awesome. Right. So again, we're just using representations of internal and external rotations uh, to identify, you know, where our available spaces are that we, that we can train without pain. And then we make an exercise selection that kind of keeps us in that place. Okay. So, so things were a bit, um, a bit day to day. Like back, um, back in that. Yeah. But, but, you know, in, in, at this, at this point knew enough to, and I had enough, you know, um, options, if you will, from an exercise standpoint that, you know, you can, you can train to a satisfactory level under the circumstance. Yeah. Because right. I mean, I, and, and ultimately what I'm getting at here is sort of, you know, how you thought about this stuff in your twenties and thirties versus kind of like where the model has taken us now and how you think about this stuff now. But I think that even what you just described is frankly, a more helpful framework than a lot of people uh, now in 2023 are applying that have chronic or persistent pain where, you know, it's, it's a situation where they'll either hurt. And so they'll write off the training session entirely um, or they'll go, you know, way too hard in the opposite direction and they'll hurt and say, but this is, this is what's on the piece of paper today. So this is what I'm going to be doing. So even yeah. that process of walking into the gym, doing an easy self-assessment, I, I love what you said with the shoulders, like hanging from a bar, like just something that, that should be somewhat comfortable. And if it's right. not applying some modalities, lacrosse ball, um, yeah. foam roller, what have you, maybe like banded distraction techniques and then retesting, at least that gives someone some kind of place to start to have a relationship with how their body is moving and feeling on that day versus living in the land of like emotions or shoulds or a whole host of other things that isn't that isn't going to be that adaptive. Right. Well, but also consider the, the fact that, you know, from a background perspective, I have a few more options in mind than, than somebody else might have. And so if the only thing that you have is the program that you purchased off of the internet, and then they said, follow this, then that's what you follow under many circumstances. And again, this this might be the the, the place where it's like, okay, it's probably time to seek some specific guidance. Like the, once you reach a certain point where you get this recurrent stuff, it's like get get some objective eyes on you, regardless of of what you think you might know, or who would have made the recommendations for the things that you're doing now, right? The the one of the things that is a little concerning is is people's attraction to um, online advice. It it it's easy to access, right? Going going to see a a, a qualified health professional is is um, um, uncomfortable for most people, right? Because again, they have to now take responsibility for it. They have to give up their time. They're going to be told things that they don't want to hear, right? And and uh, um, it it is it tends to be one of the best course of action under the circumstances is when you're faced with again these these recurrent injuries or chronicity. So I just want to throw that in. No, well, well said. And no I think, you what, know, no matter what we say today, Tim, no matter what we say today, we need to make that very, very clear. And I yeah. think that that is even true for this podcast's audience, which consists pretty much entirely of fitness professionals and physical therapists. Uh-huh. Having, having, yeah. having another set of eyes on you is invaluable when you're going through <sighs> stuff. Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. Okay. So, so deadlift, uh, hip pain kind of locked up, bridge the gap between that moment in time and where you are today in terms of surgeries, in terms of training. Um, surgery came pretty quick after that i hung in there for total hip correct uh, say what now total hip yeah okay uh left left side first so the left side went pretty quick after that so probably within a year and a half um and then the last six months being pretty horrible um so worked around it for a while and then you, you just sort of recognize the fact that okay this is not going to get better and it, it, it gets worse and worse and worse. And you're walking. And I was walking with a cane um, in the the final final phase of that. So so again, it gets gets pretty bad. So I had the left total hip, 
done at age 44. And um, the right hip actually was doing quite well. And then it sort of hit the deep end too um, within the next year and a half. So, so at age 46, I had the second one done. Was there a period in time after the left hip where you got put you back you got back to some version of of training that you were finding acceptable? Yeah, but it was like like I said, the, the, it was sort of like the the point of rationality, if you will, that okay, this this thing is not a real hip, so I got to treat it nice, and so then you start to, you know, you start to back off in regards to the the things that you're that you're doing, um, lots of unilateral type of, of exercises, more movement-based, like with the intention of Im- improving and maintaining movement versus loading, chasing muscle mass at all costs, chasing strength at all costs, um, bouncing across the ground was no longer an option under those circumstances. And there will be, there will be examples that you will see where people will, will, you know, uh, throw caution to the wind, having had such a, such a surgery and they will just continue to do those things. Like I've seen powerlifters that that have in, at one time squatted a thousand pounds and you will see them squatting six, 700 pounds after hip replacement and say, oh, people are like, oh, so it's just fine. It's like, no, it's not. It's not the same. You don't have an adaptable hip anymore. And so there are consequences that will be associated with that, right? So we have to be careful. Go ahead. Elaborate. I, I know this is kind of a point that's tangential to the larger one I'm trying to make, but I do think this is interesting. And I do think that uh, not enough people talk about this. Elaborate more on that. Like what, what about, you know, having a hip joint that is not your native hip joint poses a threat to doing things like running, lifting heavy, jumping, mm-hmm. because yeah. kind of on its face, you've solved the issue of the arthritic hip with a total hip. So on its right. face, that's like, okay, cool. Well, the rate limiter is no longer the rate limiter. Yeah. Well, okay. So we just have to understand a little bit about bone and what it actually does. This season of more train, less pain is brought to you by my remote fitness programming service. We've been talking a lot about navigating the minefield that is attempting to train and improve fitness while dealing with persistent pain. If you feel like this directly applies to you, it can be daunting to attempt to construct your own workouts and long-term programs. Personally, one of the best decisions I ever made was to outsource that process and hire a coach. Someone who's external to the day-to-day reality of being in my body and my brain that can take my preferences feedback, and athletic goals and coalesce them into a stable, doable fitness program that I can execute. It's an honor to serve in that role for my clients and my athletes. Stop banging your head against a proverbial wall and spinning your wheels changing workouts every week. Start investing in a long-term process to discover what your body is capable of and the long-term progress that you can make. Reach out via the contact tab on timrichart.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. So bone is connective tissue. Don't forget that part. It's connective tissue. It's got some extra stuff in it that makes it a little bit stiffer, but it's still connective tissues. And so when you run and you bound across the ground, your bones are like springs. They're going to compress and they're going to expand just like it, just like a spring does. And so they store and release a lot of energy, but now you have a total hip replacement. And so now you have a metal hip that is now replacing what was once this connective tissue behavior, which you no longer have. And so then there would be secondary consequences associated with that. So now you're going to put load on other structures because the, the, the hip itself probably will live longer than you. The question mark is, is will it remain stable being secured to your connective tissues? That's the big concern. It's like, so when you have somebody that has to go in for a revision, either there's some sort of circumstance where like I've had, had patients that will have a total hip where the, the, they scar heavily. And so then they end up with, with just a, a poorly behaving hip because they just don't have enough hip expression to do any normal activities. And then it reproduces pain elsewhere. So, you know, you're going to influence another structure, you know, pelvic pain, or um, you'll have some sort of other soft tissue concern that will, you know, interfere with, with, with activities. Um, sorry, I got a pooch right here. That's interfering with my, my thought process. Talking about interference. Uh, did Rita finish yeah. her peanut butter con? Uh, she did. She actually did. <laughs> she's, 
she's now wandering aimlessly. So again, I have to. <laughs> you you did call it. that, by the way. You said we have about twenty five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. You know your you know your pup. Yeah, get me back on track. Um, bone being connective tissue, which again would Thank be you, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, so, so, so no matter what anybody says, no matter what anyone says, no matter how great your hip replacement is, um, you still have, you still have a, a, a hip that cannot behave normally because again, replacing, replacing bone with metal doesn't make it better. Right. Well, while we may be part cyborgs, those of us that have undergone, you know, such a, such a thing, it doesn't make it better. Um, again, you don't have the adaptability that you had uh, previously. Some you don't have some of the negative secondary consequences associated with 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 having a, a bony hip structure, but but there are so many benefits to it. The the amount of shape change that that a hip experiences just with normal walking um, is is no longer there, and and so you will experience things. You will have. Um, um, losses in in mobility that would be associated with with connective tissue behaviors you don't have that you don't have the softness if you will that we would typically have so so me going through something as simple as a, a toe touch activity there are there are actually a limit that is being applied because it is metal that will not move to the same degree as the bony structures would. And again, how much does it move? It doesn't move necessarily a lot, but it does move and it is part of, of normal behavior that I no longer have. And so we always have to take that into consideration. And, and then in your mind, if we were to impose things like heavy loading or, you know, as you call running and jumping, bouncing across the ground, there would be an increased risk of potential injury to adjacent structures. So we're talking like, like higher up in the pelvis or lower on the femur. Yeah, potentially. But, but think about this. Think about the, here's the worst consequence is you take a, you take a, an artificial hip that is secured in the bone. And then because there's connective tissue behavior around the implant, that's where the, the concern for change would be because now you have an implant that can actually loosen and then start to move. And now you don't have a secure implant anymore. And now you're going in for the revision. That's that's the thing that we really want to avoid more than anything else. Because here's here's one of the things that you have to recognize, um, especially in, and, and I realize that total hip replacements are rather extreme as far as surgery goes. They didn't fix the problem that caused the hip degeneration in the first place. They replaced the structure that was no longer intact. So if your uh, hip pain is associated with a pelvic orientation, uh, a loss of, of joint excursion anywhere, that problem still exists which means that there are still going to be load on structure. There's still going to be tensions on structure. And so it becomes even more important for you to, to be diligent in your um, attempts to improve your ability to move well, whatever that might be. I, I want to, uh, so, so I, again, personally and professionally, I, I agree with you. It's like, I think people come to us with diagnoses of at the hip, it's like labral tear, FAI, hip osteoarthritis, and they want that diagnosis to be the answer as to the thing that, you know, gets them out of pain. But in reality, most of the time, and again, this is my bias, this sounds like it's Bill's bias, there is something that precipitated that exact diagnosis. If that diagnosis is even the thing that's, you know, culpable for generating the pain experience, what would you, but I do want to kind of give a little devil's advocate position here. I mean, when we talk about things like, especially like FAI or, HIPOA that maybe is is the resultant of uh, you know someone that has a hip socket that just isn't oriented as favorably as other hip sockets. But there's like an underlying genetic component. Do we feel like a surgery like that uh, might have a little bit more validity in fixing the quote unquote original issue, or would you say there's still other stuff kind of going on most of the time? Um, what what if we what if we make it both? Yeah, right. So we have to take into consideration the influence of, of selected activities. You can't ignore a genetic component, but I think people default to that way too quickly, right? There are certainly dysplasias that, that will be recognized very early on in life. I think in those situations, I don't think there's any question that, that the genetic component becomes very, very strong 
within the reasoning behind why something might have occurred. But if you're in your 30s, there could be changes that have happened over time through loading that now predispose you to certain structures hypertrophying. So we would see changes in, in socket shape because here's the unfortunate circumstance. We don't have enough information in the early phases of your, of your life because you didn't have problems before, right? And so we want to say, oh, it's genetic because you got a cam and a pincer, right? Okay, only on one side? Interesting, right? So, and again, it's like, I'm not taking anything away from anybody. I'm, I'm not trying to inflict blame upon people, but we do have to take some responsibilities for the fact that, okay, maybe this is the, maybe it's the way that I've been loading this structure over a longer period of time. Maybe I should not have been a catcher in baseball based on my physical structure, even though I was really good at it. And maybe I really, really wanted to do that, but maybe sitting in the crouch for extended periods of time actually put load on the structure. And now I have a bony adaptation that is now the resultant cause of my, my hip structure issues, right? And so we're always going to fight that battle as to what happened, because like I said, we didn't x-ray everybody when they were 20 and say, okay, here's your physical structure at age 20. And then we didn't look at it at age 30. We just look at it at the end result and we say, oh yeah, genetically speaking, you, you lost the lottery, but, and maybe so, but again, there are, there might be secondary consequences that are associated with that that we could have recognized earlier on, and then you wouldn't have this problem. But those are the things that we could, we could, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda all day long, and it's not gonna matter, right? From a, and I apologize to the listeners for the abrupt transition, but from a uh, ache, like ache, pain kind of perspective, uh, how do you feel nowadays? I mean, you know, gone through, awesome. we've talked about three three surgeries, like uh -huh. how, you know, like, like what, what do things look like now? What do things feel like now? Um, pretty darn good. I don't really think about my hips too much other than the fact that I do stuff every day. So my, my, my morning routine is get up, meditate, and then it becomes movement for the next 40 minutes because that's, it's important to me because I do feel good, generally speaking, other than a little bit of right knee swelling that creeped up like within the last two weeks. Thanks a lot for putting me on the podcast during during this phase of my <laughs> life. You turn 57 and stuff like that happens. You go through your list of ailments every time you get up in the morning and you, you do like a little self-check and then that kind of tells you what you're going to do for the day. But but uh, no, generally speaking, I feel I feel really good. Um, I can I train intensively twice a week, which means that I do loaded activities twice a week. But it's not like I'm throwing a big heavy bar on my back or anything like that. Um, more associated with with you know dynamics in regards to squat mobility in regards to a squat. I don't do I don't do heavy pulls off the floor um, or anything like that. I'll do a little bit of a little bit of heavy pressing to satisfy my my urge, right? Um, but that's like feed the beast. Like three, well, but the thing about it, it's like three sets a week. It's like what what it's like that's just maintenance at this point. Right. 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 Um, and then I do a tremendous amount of walking at this point. And again, I'm just old. I'm, I'm 57 years old. Um, so, you know, my my desire for being superhero level and bulletproof really isn't a concern at this point. Um, so, I mean, I... so it's mobility every day, every day. It's walking almost every day. And then um, there'll be some interval stuff that goes on in, in that like sprinkled throughout the week. So I do something in, that's intensive from a conditioning standpoint, but, uh, but just a lot of activity, generally speaking, and the more activity you do, the less intensive it's going to be. But um, the thing that you learn when you get to be my age and beyond is that generating intensity is not a limitation. Like everybody can generate intensity. Your ability to recover from it is what changes. And like I've heard I, you, I've heard ahead. you say that before. Uh, you would mean kind of relative intensity in that statement, right? Like like a hundred percent for you on that given day. Yeah, like I can okay. crank it up. I I'll bury it in the gym if you want me to. Like I can do it. What think about this, Tim? It's like you know the the mentality that it took to get as big and strong as I did is abnormal. Right. I'm not saying that that it's like stellar or anything like that. It's just abnormal compared to the average. 
which means that my ability to tolerate stuff is pretty high at this point, right? You know, and uh, um, so again, I could I could push anybody's buttons in the jam. I'll pay for it for a long time, <laughs> but I could still do it. But we're talking Bill's one rep maxes at age 57, not Bill's one rep maxes at age 30. Uh, no, no. The one rep maxes at age 30 were, were for me, were, were, were pretty stellar. Now it's like pedestrian. <laughs> no, because I think about this, you know, even with me and running, it's like, it's like, could I go to the track and rip off 30 second 200s now? Maybe. Yeah, it would, it, 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 would, it wouldn't go well, but it's yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's like there, there's, there would be a consequence to those actions that I don't want to experience ever again. How do you think about the composition of, so you said 40 minutes daily of what you termed, you know, movement work or mobility work. How do you think about the composition of what belongs in that block for you? Um, it, 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 so there, there's a little bit of difference for like, so I do a, like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday kind of thing and a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday kind of a thing. And then Sunday's sort of like a hodgepodge of stuff. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it is, is capturing what I would consider the end ranges, if you will. So end range ER, end range IRs. Um, so again, that would be the difference between the, the 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 two days again from a time perspective i don't want to spend two hours every day trying to do all of this stuff but but generally speaking that that's what that's what's going to be the the general structure i need you need to be able to move away from midline and you need to be able to capture midline that's basically basically how we behave as human beings and so if you have the two ends then you have all the stuff in between and that's usually where you spend most of your time and so it's, it's important that you hang on to those end ranges. When thinking about specific activity selection, is mm -hmm. that something that is based on location of movement impairment? Is this something where you're looking at things like a squat, like a split squat, and then breaking that down and sort of generating these mini hypotheses as to what corrective, there, yeah, how do you, there, like, what does that actually look like for you? Uh, you mean like the actual activities themselves? Like you can give one, but I'm more interested in like the process by which you would select a new activity designed to recapture motion for yourself. Um, so again, you have, you have to consider that the, the um, how things are are actually working together. So our ability to make to make turns, there are certain shapes that have to be acquired under that circumstance to, to make the turns. So, so again, the goal is to maintain your ability to turn, move away from midline and then push down into the ground. So this is where we're, we're applying our greatest forces into the ground. You gotta be able to do, do both of those. And so um, I will give you a, for instance. So if you were to be, if you go to, if you're in quadruped, drop down to your elbows. So you're on your elbows and knees now and move them away from midline. So you're in a prone, you look like a frog, Laying on, yep, you're like a frog laying on its belly and then sit sitting that back into what would be, if it was upright, it would look like squat. That's an ER, that's an ER dominant representation of, of a squat behavior. And then there would be another one where your knees are actually directly beneath your hips and then you would have to move backwards into that. And that's going to be more of an IR representation of under that circumstance, right? And so those would be two representations of capturing one versus the other using a similar activity. What fed into choosing those activities for you? Would that be isolative testing of hip IR and ER? Would that be like every week you just test a body weight squat to see how it feels? Um, it could it could be either either or under the circumstance. It's like so if you think about. Um, if you were to lay on your side, it's much easier for you to self-test your internal rotations, right? Um, so you could use that as as a guide. It's like, oh, I'm 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 either feeling something as a restriction or I'm observing a restriction. It's like, okay, I need to spend a little bit more time recapturing wh whichever that may may be under the circumstance. Um, if you're concerned about um, knee position, foot shape, things like that. There's going to be certain positions that you're going to use more often where, um, again, ER, external rotation being away from midline. Some people can't apply forces into the ground without compensatory strategies directly beneath their center of gravity. So you got to start moving people away from their, their center of gravity. So, um, for instance, um, 
you just do a body weight squat and you say, oh, if, if I keep my feet too close together, I can't squat very deep. But if I move them way out here, I can't. So you start out there, right? That's where you can start to apply the interrotation and you can gradually make any adjustments that, that you feel capable of by bringing your extremities closer and closer together. Some people will never be able to do that. Yeah. And, and and we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with that. Right. Yes. Okay. Not everybody has, well, while our structures are similar, not everybody has the same structure. Not everybody has the same access to ranges of motion. They are idiosyncratic in nature. So whatever your physical structure is determines what your norms are. We can't, we can't utilize um, the averages that would be in every textbook as, as the end all be all. We ultimately have to determine what our capabilities are. With your own individual movement program, how do you go about sussing out whether or not an activity should stay in there for another one month or three months or like introducing a new activity, modify an existing one? Like what's, what's kind of the inflow and outflow of that pool of, of movement oriented exercises for you? Well, you have to reason to do it in the first place. And then is there a benefit on the back end? So what's the outcome? So it's a simple, you are your own within subjects design. Like you're the N equals one, right? So if, if I do a certain type of a self-test and I say, okay, I'm not happy with this. What, what are the chances that I can change this? So I'm falling back on, on my understanding, what I think is possible. And then I'm going to make a selection on an, on an activity. I'm going to implement that activity. And I'm going to, number one, I'm going to see if there's an, an immediate benefit to it. Okay. If I have to consider that there's an adaptation that would have to take place, now you have to apply it over a longer period of time. But again, you're you're just following whether you're seeing the, the return on investment or not. And if you're not, then you make another selection and you move on to the next thing. So for a certain activity where you're expecting some improvement in either overall range of motion or comfortable range of motion, we could use something like a split squat or a squat kind of before and after that activity to suss out whether the thing is doing the thing that we want it to do? Right. So com complex movements are comparators. We will be back after this quick message. The biggest struggles trainers and rehab professionals have with building and scaling their online training programs, attracting remote fitness clients, and maintaining communication is having quality videos that provide exercise technique and coaching instruction. Well, now you can stop searching the internet. You will never find them unless you go to michellebowen-training.com for the best exercise database on the internet. Imagine all of the funny looks your programs get when clients are trying to figure out what an exercise on their training program is instead of having clear instruction. Gain access to over 1,500 exercise videos, coaching tutorials, and hundreds of positional instructional videos to send to your remote clients with the new digital format of the MBT Exercise Database. You will not find a contralateral reach walking lunge, a military crawl designed for posterior expansion, or a frontal plane hip shifting med ball slam on YouTube or anywhere else for that matter. The new database dropped in 2021 and hundreds of fitness and rehab professionals use it to easily build out their online training programs with built-in buttons to insert the videos into personalized training programs or to use videos to send to their rehab patients for at-home homework. The database will transform your training business by drastically improving scalability, improving communication with clients, and teaching them proper technique from afar. If you don't believe me, Dr. Pat Davison said, and I quote, this database is a goldmine for coaches who care about executing movements for athletes that can legitimately impact sports performance and health. So head over to michellebowen-training.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. That's what we use them for. That's why that's why you typically would include some form of complex movement in any evaluation that you do. 
right? Because there's a lot of pieces that fit into that. So considering uh, a deep squat, there's a lot of different ways that people can achieve a deep squat. There's a lot of different ways that people can achieve a split squat. There's a lot of different ways that people can touch their toes. What we have to do is we have to understand how is that is that activity being executed? What are the perceived limitations if, if I can't achieve it to any significant degree? And then we have to ask, ask ourselves, if I am successful, why am I successful when I have this limitation in other things? because those are going to be your compensatory strategies that probably need to be addressed. And I think by complex movements, we're talking squat, toe touch, split squat. There's a whole lot of stuff moving together. Yeah. And I I, I wouldn't consider as complex as elbows are, I wouldn't consider bending and straightening your elbow nearly as complex as trying to achieve a deep squat or a standing rotation activity or anything like that. And and this is this is sort of where this gets interesting because I, I like what you said about movements like that being comparators, meaning they're comparators, not diagnostics. And this is where, I mean, you know, this is kind of the whole reason why the FMS and SFMA were kind of generated way back in the day was to give clinicians an ability to break out these more complicated movement patterns into constituent parts that might be intervened upon by manual therapy, specific mobility drills, soft tissue work, um, and the like they can be more diagnostic if you understand what movements are necessary to access certain spaces, certain shapes, and certain positions. Sure. Okay. So let's, let's not, let's not negate the the value here, but, but when we're talking about like a self-assessment or giving somebody um, a way to monitor their own movement behaviors, that's what I'm talking about when when you're talking about comparators. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to execute an isolative movement actively. And so so we just eliminate that, you know, from from this the self-assessment. It's because you can't do it. Try to try to internally rotate your own hip. It's like, okay, there's going to be about 17 different ways that you could compensate your way out of that one and make it look like you have a lot of a lot of movement. But again, we have to consider the contributors um, that we're going to be um, utilizing under those circumstances. And believe me, I firsthand know the pain of trying to actively internally rotate my own hip, my friend. <laughs> yes. So, so do you then go through your movement program every month or two and do kind of a, a pre and post test to ensure that you're capturing you know, the efficacy of the program? Or how do you think about that? Um, I'm, I'm not terribly formal in regards to timing but you can tell when you're sort of getting to the end of the benefit of a certain activity and then it's just time to move on to whatever is next sometimes you take things out for a while sometimes you put things back in for a while it just depends on again at my age like i said i run through my list of ailments every morning and i figure out which one is is most interfering and then we'll probably spend some some time on that so I don't I don't know that there's um, any magical progression because again we're 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 always picking and choosing certain activities to do certain things and that's going to change over time and there's only so many different ways that we're going to be able to do that. We have constraints. We're humans. We have constraints. There's not it's not infinite. It truly isn't. There's many ways to do things, but they're not infinite. Sure. But I also, you know, I, I consider you to be right up at the front of people thinking about how human beings move. And I know that, you know, you still treat clinically a, a couple mm-hmm. of days a week. So it's like you're you're still you're continuing to evolve your thought processes in yeah. insofar as how movement works. So it's like as you're generating these ideas or continuing to evolve these ideas, it's kind of curious to me to think, oh, like may, may, maybe this might work. And then you would go to your own program and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to replace this old exercise with this new idea, roll with it yeah. for two weeks and kind of see if there's anything to this. Yeah. I mean, there's always, ex- there's always experimentation that's, that's going on, but I wouldn't say that I'm, um, you know, documenting in a, you know, some formal way as to, you know, I'm running a, like a deep science experiment. I'm just, ha- I'm just playing. I'm having fun. I'm doing things that, that, that feel good under most circumstances. Right. There might be something that I do on occasion that I'm really particular about. 
But again, I, I do other things that are very formal. So I only have so much energy <laughs> at my age. Uh, I don't think you're going to like this question. So feel free to not answer it. But because I, I know I know it's it's the entirety of the program that is responsible for your body feeling pretty good. But is are there one or two specific exercises within that program that feel like they deliver outsized, almost asymmetric benefit to you and your symptoms, your mobility profile relative to the other things there? Like anything where it's like, wow, I could, I, like, if I only had five minutes, I'm going to do these two things. Um, so when you think about where the greatest access of relative motion would be, a hook lying activity actually represents a very easy place to access that. You're very well supported. Your center of mass is behind um, some of the most important contacts you have, which would be your feet. Um, reaching activities from that position, very useful. Um, a lot of the stuff that we do from a loading perspective. So my my whole you know, lifting experience, 25 years worth or more, probably more than that, um, is driving a tremendous amount of force in an internally rotated representation. So a lot of compressive activities. And so one of the ways that you can learn to sort of re-expand yourself, if you will, would be in, in, in a hook lying position. So uh, a lot of just simple hook lying activities, hook lying cross connects, things like that, where again, you're, you're restoring anterior posterior expansion of a skeleton that was compressed by very, very heavy loads and a tremendous amount of muscle mass at one point in time. Yeah. And, and this is, it, it's funny that you mentioned hook lying. I think that um, if people aren't aware of uh, the podcast that Bill does with, is it Chris? Chris Wykus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you talked about this a few episodes back, but simply going into hook lying, which uh, for those of you that don't know, laying on your back and knees bent, feet flat on the floor, putting one hand on your belly, putting one hand on your chest and observing what happens to the position of both of those hands in space as you breathe. I mean, I've used that countless times over the past two or three months just to get someone more aware of their own inability to either fully expand or fully depress those areas. Because ultimately what we're looking for is as much excursion as possible. Correct. The, the the expansion that you would experience in, the, in that position would be, um, again, one of the, the best ways to represent what your current movement capabilities will be. It, it is your ability to expand and reduce the superficial muscle strategies that we all experience. Those are the greatest limiters of, of, of movement. And so if you can re-expand yourself in that position, you tend to have a pretty favorable outcome in regards to your, your external rotations and internal rotations. Yeah, we, we don't have time to double click on that, but but what you just said, I think probably took me about eight years of being a physical therapist to, to get to, which is the superficial muscular strategies are the greatest source of movement restriction, at least most of the time for most people. I think really getting an appreciation of that. If if you are a clinician that works with people that are in some, you know, some degree of pain, getting a handle on why those superficial muscular compression strategies are there in the first place what you can do to get them to tone down and then how you can coach people to move in ways that don't encourage just the ramp right back up of those strategies is, is sort of a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so something that you, you mentioned this 10 minutes ago, I'm just kind of curious though, uh, meditation, what's that look like for you? Uh, sitting still <laughs> and not thinking about anything real simple. So no tired. No app. I do set a timer because I, I will drift, drift away into nothingness. Um, been doing it for a really long time. So you get pretty good at it after a while. Um, I initially used apps because I was terrible at it. And then as you get better, you sort of realize like, okay, the app is now interference. It's actually distracting me away from, from my ability to uh, eliminate thoughts. Right. And well, I, I, I have, I have the tendency to be a ruminator. So, so if I get something in my head, it will cycle endlessly until I, until I, uh, remove it. And the, that's the best way for me to do such things. So the intention of starting the meditation practice was to garner the ability to kind of like let things go a little bit more easily. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, never was a great sleeper. And then, 
one of the reasons is because I always have stuff going around in my head. So you learn how to do like a brain dump in the, at night to get stuff out of your head. And then first thing in the morning, you, you learn how to control it. So, yeah. And I think we've, we've had a couple of guests on, on the season of this podcast, kind of talking about more nuts and bolts strategies with mindset stuff around chronic and persistent pain. And that's just one theme that keeps coming up over and over again, because, you know, you and I really talked about some of the biomechanical aspects of pain here, but uh, pain is so much more than just the sensation that you're perceiving. Pain tends to be this, this emotional entity that for a lot of people will, will send them into this negative spiral, um, right. either a depressive one where they're, you know, they're like kind of waxing poetic about what they used to be able to do or who they used to be, um, or an anxiety riddled one where they're really worried about what things could look like in five or 10 years. So I know, you know, personally, and for a lot of patients I manage, uh, meditation and generating more of an ability to just be in that present moment and not engage with the tendency to spiral seems to be profoundly, profoundly useful for so many people. Yeah. It keeps you focused on the, on the present to, to do what is necessary at the moment. Right. Indeed. Uh, last question for you. Cause I know, I know you have to run. Um, and we didn't really generalize any of these concepts, but I thank you for providing a lot of specificity. What do you think is kind of the, the key misconception that, you know, your patients, or you could even say like your mentees have when it comes to pain. And I realize that's probably an unfairly broad question, but is there anything that leaps to mind? Well, I think, I think a lot of professionals have recognized the fact that there are multiple influences as to why someone may have pain. I think the patient's perspective is that there's always a reason and there's always a solution and it's always something physical without the understanding of the, of the emotional psychological component and, and how it, especially how it magnifies it. I think that's one of the bigger ones. Take a biomechanical issue that results in a mechanical uh, source of pain throw some emotions on top of it, increase the anxiety levels, it's always going to be worse. And it's always going to be more challenging to resolve it. And, and that's, that's like from the patient's perspective, that's what they probably don't understand. Right. I'm not, I would never eliminate the, the, the biomechanical as, as an influence because it, it's, it's very strong. And I think it gets negated by some people that, that kind of fall further into the, the the nervous system as the solution. It's like you eliminate all the biomechanical factors. There's there's usually um, a significant benefit to that, but there's always other stuff that, that has to be accounted for. Um, the longer you have discomfort, especially you know, you, you dip into the chronicity, it's like you're you're you've got adaptations within your nervous system that that can make this relatively permanent. That has to be addressed. There's no question about that. Right. But again, from I, I I would hesitate to think that anybody that I've been associated with in the last few years would blame strictly a, a physical component um, onto the the source of pain. I think we're better. I think we're better at that now. Sure, sure. But you can go off the deep end. No, I think the, the pendulum kind of had to go too far in the other direction, which it did sort of towards the end of my time in physical therapy school. I think like yeah. the, the, the mid 2010s were when kind of like the pain neuroscience thing had its heyday. Yeah. 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 I think, like I said, I, th I think that most professionals have, have that understanding. But again, when you think about the impact that we have, it's like say the right things, do the right things, and then execute to, you know, eliminate the, and I don't want to say that limiting biomechanical factors is easy, but it, it from an access standpoint for us, that is that is our general background. That's where we got to go first, right? Eliminate that. Eliminate that. You still have issues. Then you got to bring somebody else into the into the picture. I think under those circumstances, because I was a bartender, but I'm not a very good psychologist. My my question was going to be, how do you think about engaging your patients on a psychological or emotional standpoint? But I think you just answered that question. Well, okay. The, the, the simplest answer for that is just don't do stupid stuff, right? Don't, don't, don't give them the opportunity to personalize it, right? Don't give it, don't give pain a name. I, I, somebody walks into, into the purple room. I never ask them, how is your pain? I would never do that. I say, how'd you do with your homework, right? That's something that they can take control over, right? 
that's where you want to place the emphasis. To that. It's like, where do they have, where do they have the element of control? Focus on that, right? It's not that the pain's not important. It's just that we don't want to, we don't want to give it, give it the power. Yeah. Well, well said. Well, Bill, I mean, I could talk to you for another three hours. We just Joe Rogan this thing, but I know you're a, you're, you're a busy guy. I got to get you back to your puppy. Um, yeah, tell for, for, for the people that are still listening, I, I know um, you and Chris kind of worked on a, a product. You have your podcast. Where can yeah. people find out more about who you are, what you do? Yeah. So the, the program for the program is, is, is uh, Recon U. Uh, and uh, that's reconu.co. Um, so this is for the folks that have started, they, they always try to make their exercise come back. They run into um, some sort of obstacle along the way. Maybe it's interference for a lack of movement. Maybe it's some sort of painful condition. This is the program before the program. So, so that, that's what we've started there. The Recon Podcast supports that um, as well. So um, that's available on the YouTube channel or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I am, I am on the, the Instagram, um, during the week at some point in time. Um, so you can, you can go to bill underscore Hartman underscore PT. Um, that is a relatively new, um, address for me since Instagram, uh, somehow I said something that somebody shouldn't have said, which I have no idea what that is. They never tell you, but they took away my account. And so we had to start fresh there. So, uh, if you used to be on the old Bill Hartman PT, um, make sure you get signed up for, I know it's just ridiculous. Uh, the YouTube channel cancel bill. I don't understand, man. Uh, yeah, I don't know how this social media thing works anyway. Uh, He's, he said pain is a purely biomechanical phenomenon and they took them I, off. <laughs> Yeah, don't start. Uh, we got 800 and some videos on the on the YouTube channel, Bill Hartman PT, and then BillHartmanPT.com. And let's see. Oh, Coffee and Coaches conference call every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We get on there and we talk shop for a couple hours. So we got people from all over the world on that call. So if you're, I, I, we, we actually get people from, from other countries that actually get up in the wee hours of the morning to get on this call. It's kind of weird. Um, so if you're in the Eastern time zone, it's 6 a.m. is pretty easy. Western, probably a little bit more difficult. Um, but uh, Or Pacific time, I guess Pacific time, right? I'm not really good with time zones. Um, so I'm on there as well. I, me me yeah. attending what I believe involved me waking up at about four in the morning. So I, I've yet to attend, but the, okay, the intention so is there. I'm I'm up at that time. So I, I would expect you to be there uh, on Thursday. Uh, give me a couple, give me a couple decades. <laughs> <laughs> and Bill, Bill's Instagram will of course be the place where uh, there will be, I assume Rita, the puppy content at least once a week. Um, very rarely do we put Rita. Okay. Yeah. No, she's a little shy right now. So. All right. Well, she's entitled, entitled to her privacy. Bill, thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate you as always. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.